time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. One day left till Reformation Day. It feels just like Christmas. <laughs> Well, that's going to be interesting. Tomorrow on the program. See, I'm talking about tomorrow's program at the leadoff of today's program. I'm sure that somewhere, somewhere in the rules of radio, you're not supposed to talk about tomorrow's program today, at least not at the beginning of the program. I mean, I'm, you're supposed to tell people what's coming up. But I'm excited about tomorrow's program, folks. Tomorrow will be an interesting uh, program, to say the least. Uh, the least. I've got uh, Pastor Bill Swirla coming into the studio here, the uh, stu- uh, do- uh, dorm room studio here at Pirate Christian Radio, also known as Animal House. If you would take a look at this place, yeah, it's mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> decorated in modern pirate. It's very well done. Um, he's going to be coming in tomorrow, and we're going to be talking about a new 95 Theses. There's been a new 95 Theses that has been circulating around the Internet since the cancellation of issues, etc. And uh, the new 95 Theses really goes after this uh, purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive, relevant way of doing church. And so tomorrow in studio, it'll kind of just you're going to get to listen in on a conversation between myself and Pastor Bill Swirla regarding all the issues brought up here in these new 95 theses. Uh, We both have agreed that we're going to be adopting these theses and picking them up and carrying some water for them. And uh, the goal here is uh, to have a discussion regarding these. Definitely going to be worth the listen tomorrow. That's going to be tomorrow at 3 o'clock Pacific here on Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, definitely, you know, I've I've got the new 95 theses in my hand here. (laughs) I'll give you a little bit of a teaser of some of the the theses in the new 95 Theses. Uh, It says, uh, number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. Number two, to repent means to be contrite for one's sins and to trust Jesus Christ and, uh, and solely in his completed work for one's forgiveness, life, and salvation. Those who describe, this is number three, those who describe the Christian life as purpose-driven deny true repentance, confuse law and gospel, and obscure the merits of Christ. Now, some of you listening, uh, maybe purpose-driven types, are thinking them as fighting words. Well, yeah, that's kind of what a a thesis is all about. These These are propositions designed to be discussed and debated. And so tomorrow we're going to be walking through these and uh, definitely recommend that you uh, make a point of tuning into tomorrow's show. And if you can't tune in live, then podcasts will work. Let me tell you, we love our uh, uh, the people who listen to um, Pirate Christian Radio and to Fighting for the Faith via podcast. Uh, you are not lesser citizens in the realm of Pirate Christian Radio, dumb. I think I just made that word up. All right, let's get on to some listener email here today. We've got a good show to do. Before we go, we got listener email. We've got a news story regarding the shack. Uh, this uh, brand new news story regarding the shack, as if we haven't done the shack to death already. And uh, and uh, then we're going to be uh, listening to, a, we have a good sermon that we're going to listen to. In fact, we're going to listen to one of Bill Swirla's sw- sermons regarding uh, present sufferings and future glory. I kind of put this in juxtaposition to what we heard from uh, Joel Osteen's wife, Victoria Osteen, whom we lovingly refer to as Heresy Barbie. 
about learning to love your life. And yesterday we talked about the, uh, you know, we responded to a listener email about what does the life-hating life look like. Well, Pastor Bill Swirla, in one of his recent sermons, uh, discusses present sufferings and future glory, which I think is relevant to our topic today. We'll talk a little bit about how people uh, uh, kind of like magic uh preach philosophy while making it look like they're actually telling you what God's word says, but they don't. And so, uh, you know, we've got, let's just say we've got a busy show. So without any further ado, let's dive into our listener email. Funny enough, I haven't received any um, emails from people complaining about the Blazing Saddles Bible study, which I'm a little bit surprised about because, I mean, that Blazing Saddles Bible study was is definitely a little off the hook. It's a little... <clears throat> Definitely a little rough for some people, you know, for guys who cares, you know, we like potty humor and, uh, but uh, I haven't received any emails from the ladies complaining about that particular Bible study. Um, but uh, let's see here. Uh, I did get a couple of emails regarding it though. Uh, Thomas, uh, writes, he says, uh, Chris, uh, he calls me Mr. Chris, Mr. Chris, could the flatulent issue actually be a joyful noise? My wife and I, uh, my wife and I am sure she believes that it comes out of the fall of man, though. At least that is how she, she acts when I express myself in this way. So if it is surely a joyful noise, hey, hey, I may have an argument here. You know, Tom, see, that's the thing. In, nowadays, you can twist the Bible to say whatever you want it to say. And you can interpret it to mean whatever you want it to mean or whatever really suits you best. And so... Who cares if, you know, make a joyful noise to the Lord, you know, means something other than flatulence. By all means, in today's climate and culture, it does, words are like a wax nose. You can bend them any way you want. So feel free to just take God's word and mangle it and twist it so that when it says in the scriptures to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, that that also would include flatulence. You notice I was speaking tongue in cheek. <clears throat> yeah, um. Believe me, uh, Tom, uh, when I say that, you know, it would, my life would be a lot easier if, if it was possible to somehow shoehorn, make a joyful noise into including flatulence. Um, but then again, if I were to use that argument and really overuse it, I might end up becoming a divorced man. Different story. All right. Um, Reverend Jonathan, uh, C. Watt writes, uh, and he's in, uh, Iowa. He says, uh, it, it was a gas, <laughs> Uh, he says, I was aghast at your suggestion for a Blazing Saddles being seen Bible study. He And see, he, he, there was a plan word. I was aghast. G-A-S. Yes. Got the pun there, uh, <laughs> Pastor Watt. He says, a joyful noise. Ha! Talk about a belly laugh. Wow. Nice comparison. Nice absurdity. Thank you, Pastor Watt. Notice that so far only the men have chimed in and, and uh, <laughs> the Blazing Saddles. Bible study. All right. Now, I did get an email regarding the uh, news story yesterday that I read regarding uh, the call from morality and media for pastors, calling on pastors, please, pastors, preach against pornography, and and if you would, call it a sin. (laughs) Oh, what does the world come to when pastors can't even bring themselves to say that pornography is a sin? It's just... It's just something that doesn't help you experience God's best for your life. I mean, we wouldn't want that to happen now, would we? Uh, Andrew writes, he says, I find it really unfortunate that pornography is being singled out by these purpose drivers. 
drivers, purpose drivers. In other words, porn can actually be called sin only if you whisper when you say the S word. Yes, porn is a sin. Don't want to say it too loud, but it's a sin. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. But every other thing that is in fact a sin is simply called bad stuff that we do. You know, Andrew, I agree with you, but the thing is, is that the way these seeker-sensitive purpose-driven types preach about sin, they don't really preach it as sin. Like I said, it's just something that that gets in the way of you experiencing God's best for you. I mean, it could harm your self-esteem, and God has better things for you than pornography, you know? And wouldn't you want to have those better things than than this counterfeit substitute thing? So put away the counterfeit and, and come on over and have the real thing. Um, yeah, no no concept of, <clears throat> yeah, what you've done is offend an angry God, you know, God who's going to be wrathful. He, he, God is loving for sure, but... Um, at the same time, he's also just, and we've got no concept that we've offended God by our actions. He says, if these preachers, if these pastors and churches would just preach sin as the Bible teaches it, we would be feeling a lot more uncomfortable all about all of our sins, not just porn, and hence more reliant on Christ's shed blood. Andrew, absolutely agree with you. Have to say amen, amen, good email. All right, this next email I'm going to read is an email that I wrote. Yes, I know, it's a little gratuitous, isn't it? I can hear you all groaning and mumbling now. Oh, man, Rosebro's going to read an email that he wrote. Well, give me a second here, you know, before you take my head off. This is a uh, email that I wrote to Kurt Johnson. Kurt Johnson, by the way, is the youth pastor at Saddleback Church that wrote the uh, High School Musical 3 Bible study. Um, he's got a he's got his own blog, and I took the liberty of visiting his blog and and leaving a message for him, and um, which I think is an important thing to do because why you know we we took his work and we critiqued it yesterday in light of scripture, so I think it's only fair that he knows that I did that and and let him know what I thought about it and invite him to you know to listen to the show. So uh, here's what I wrote on on Kurt's blog. By the way, blogs nowadays are kind of like. Uh, people's personal mailboxes. They're interactive mailboxes. So if you really want to have a conversation with somebody you've never met before, show up at their blog and leave them a message. You know, that's not, that's not a bad way of striking up a conversation with somebody. So I wrote to Kurt, Kurt, I read through and reviewed your high school musical three Bible study on my radio program yesterday. Have to admit, I was extremely disappointed in the content of the study and your misuse, twisting, and misapplication of God's word, as well as the moralizing and group therapy techniques that you engaged in. My heart breaks for the kids that participated in the High School Musical 3 study who learned nothing about true biblical Christianity and who learned how to misuse, twist, and misapply God's word from the terrible example that you set. I invite you to listen to my critique at, and I put the link where he can listen to the show, and I have a request from you Saddleback guys. Next time you decide to be relevant by creating a Bible, uh, by creating Bible study materials that are based upon the latest fads, could you at least properly handle God's word and preach Christ crucified for our sins? If you need help properly handling God's word, I'd be happy to offer my services to you all in the future. Signed, Chris Roseborough from ExtremeTheology.com. Now, I wanted to read that to you because, you know, it's important. I want you to know, I, you know, I do try to reach out to these guys and don't want to, I'm not just interested in bashing their work and, you know, somehow saying, dun, 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 I'm great because I bash them. No, that's not what this is about at all. And uh, funny enough, I've actually met Kurt. We met in an airport once. 
I was in Denver. He was in Denver. I was there in business. He was there for some youth conference or something or other. And we happened to be taking the same exact flight home. And we, uh, I didn't know that uh, it was him. But we, what's funny is it was really a kind of a weird coincidence, if you believe in coincidences, um, that you know we were getting on the plane together. So we were on the on the jetway. He was right in front of me, and I was right behind him. And I looked at him and I go, "You're Chris Johnson from Saddleback." And he's all, "Yeah, how do you know me?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm all Chris from Extreme Theology. He's all, hi. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. So anyway, that's the message that I let for, left for for uh, for Kurt. And here's the deal, okay? Listen, if Saddleback Church or any other church or any other pastor wants to put together a Bible study based upon the latest fad or hit movie, you know, that's great. All right, and I wouldn't have a problem with that if, if, if the Bible study material was actually, get this, a Bible study, and it taught people how to correctly handle God's word, and then and the, the passages of Scripture that were being read were not just some leftover thing to proof text something from the movie, but you use the movie as a spring point into the greater truth. One of the things I, I have a problem with what Kurt did in the uh, High School Musical 3 Bible study is that um, really it, it the movie and the Bible passages that were taken out of context pointed me to me, pointed people to themselves, and that it was moralizing, it was group therapy, it was God's Word taken out of context and really misapplied. If you're going to be handling God's word, handle it as God's word, understanding this isn't this isn't our stuff here. We're dealing with God's truth, and we handle it appropriately. And that means handling it with a little bit of fear, a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of understanding. Wait a second, the, 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 these are not my words, and I, God has called me into the ministry. My job is to faithfully proclaim what God proclaims in His Word not to invent or whatever. And so when you take God's word out of context and you make it say something that it doesn't say and you teach people that it says something that it doesn't teach because you've, mis- you've misused it, you're not actually drawing people closer to God. You're taking them and moving them farther away from God. And, you know, this is something that you've got to get. You've got to understand. We've got to maintain. If, if we're going to say that people are, 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 that somebody's being touched by God and that God is moving in their life, it has to be based upon sound doctrine, sound teaching, sound principles, and not, not stuff that's ripped out of context to proof text things that are going on in my life. I'm not the center of the universe. Neither are you. So anyway, that was the email that I read. I wrote him. Okay. Now this one, a little more serious, got a nasty gram, and um, person who wrote me um, made it perfectly clear that he's not a Christian. In fact, he signed his name as anti-Jesus. Anti-Jesus. Now, from time to time, I get these types of emails, and um, I would like you to hear what anti-Jesus wrote me, and um, let's uh, discuss what I said to him in return. Anti-Jesus writes, Chris, I must tell you that I rather enjoy the idea of spitting on the head of your Jesus. My only regret is that I was not born at the time that Jesus, supposing he was ever real, walked the earth so that I might be the one that spears him and gives him the last blow that extinguishes his life. I wonder what old Herod would have thought of that. 
Interesting email. Okay, so anti-Jesus writes me, and, well, the subject is anti-Jesus. Actually, his name is Smartmouth. Sorry about that. Smartmouth, Smartmouth78. He's, he's living up to his word. So he says that he likes the idea of spitting on the head of Jesus, and his only regret is that he wasn't born at the time that Jesus walked the earth so that he can actually be the one that sticks the spear into him and extinguishes his life. Now, folks, I know that understand that understand that sounds pretty insulting and um, terrible. But here's what I wrote back to this gentleman. I said, you know, funny enough, I'm not surprised, nor am I insulted by your comment. Your comment and the attitude that underlies it are all are what all of us pretty much think and feel by nature. All human beings, according to the Bible, are born hating God. And that includes myself. So, like you, I would have actually cast my vote against Jesus and would have been yelling with the crowd, crucify him. In fact, it was yours and my sins that put Jesus on the cross. So you may as well have been the one that thrust the spear into Jesus' side. But here is the irony of that event. Jesus was actually atoning for your sins and for mine on that cross, despite our sin and guilt and hatred toward him. And then I quoted to him a wonderful passage from the scriptures, Romans chapter 5. And let me pull this up in my Bible. It says this, Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died died for us since therefore we have now been justified by his blood how much more shall we be saved by him and from the wrath of god oh there's that wrath of god stuff again pesky pesky words so there we have it um from romans chapter 5 it says that while we were still sinners christ died for us so how do you handle somebody who's angry at god who wants who has clearly decided to come and rattle your cage and throw you off your game by insulting Jesus and saying something as absurd as, I wish I had lived in his time so that I can spit on his head and actually might actually have been the one to thrust the spear into his side. Well, this is where it gets interesting. Scripture is really clear, really clear that all of us are by nature sinful and at war with God. I've gone through these passages before, but it's worth reviewing again. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, it says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of of wrath like the rest of mankind. So each and every one of us, by nature, is born with a hatred toward God. We're dead to him. And uh, what Smartmouth here, in emailing me, basically did was confirm what the scriptures say about all of us by nature. 
So when somebody insults Christ like that, it really shouldn't throw us off of our game. Now, you might want to get all insulted for Jesus and, you know, and you might be tempted to say, you know, want to do something like take this guy's block off because how dare he insult Jesus Christ? Well, yeah, I, I actually understand that sentimentality. But um, let's review the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Let's figure out where we all fit in this story. This is from Matthew 27. It says this, when morning came, this is after they had arrested Jesus, he'd been up all night, and it's uh, Matthew 27, verse 1 starts, And when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Okay? Verse 11, it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even a, to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much of him, of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So here's the question. By nature, where do you fit in this story? Are you the governor who knows the right thing to do and won't do it? Are you the governor's wife who says, oh, have nothing to do with that righteous man? No, neither. Uh, we're, we're not either of those. All of us, where we rightfully fit in this story, is in that crowd. Had you been there, what would you have been doing? Yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And then when Pilate washes his hands, as if that's going to somehow make him guiltless of Jesus' blood, he says, let Jesus' blood be on you. And what was the answer of the crowd? His blood be on us and on our children. Now that's a funny funny passage of scripture let his blood be on us and on our children 
Well, there it is. Jesus's blood actually is on all of us. All of us are guilty. All of us are the ones who put him on the cross. My sins put Jesus on the cross just as much as yours did too. Christ died for your sins. Therefore, your sins put him there. And so his blood is on you. The question is, what shape is that blood going to take? Is it going to take the shape of a blood that that speaks against you as one who murdered the author of life much the same way that Abel's blood spoke against Cain from the ground? You're guilty of murdering an innocent man. Or is his blood on you in the sense that it washes away your sins, makes you white as snow, propitiates the wrath of God, and satisfies the righteous requirements of the law. Because Christ's blood is on you one way or another. Only by faith does Christ's blood not condemn you, but instead offer you mercy and forgiveness and grace. So when we run across people who want to insult Christ, people who want to spit on him, who fantasize out loud about doing a harm to Jesus Christ. Understand that by nature, we are all one with that person. And by nature, in our own ways, we have done that. And our sin has done exactly what Smart Mouth here wanted to do, thrust the spear into Christ's side. But understand, it wasn't the spear that put out Jesus' life. Jesus handed up his own life of his own accord. He said, it is finished, and then he died. He gave up his own life. He was in control the whole time. So, even though our sin put him on the cross, Christ knew what he was doing the entire time, and what we meant for evil. (laughs) Christ worked for the salvation of men. Good email, smart mouth. I got to tell you, you're in my prayers. And boy, do I understand what you're saying here about you hating God. That's what we all do. And I thank God that on the cross, he was reconciling the world to himself. That's the good news of the cross. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to do this on time. What's wrong with me? (laughs) Roseboro's going to take his first break on time. Call the media. Call the media, (laughs) Roseboro. Tell you what, we'll be right back. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, you can at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. That's talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, and we will be right back. ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. 
Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are handpicked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Roseblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It is Thursday, October 30th, 2008. Now, do you remember back one of our earlier shows, I uh, issued a challenge. In fact, it was the Creflo Dollar $10,000 challenge. Uh, played this... <laughs> Creflo Dollar had done an interview on CNN, and he completely mangled God's word. And so I issued the uh, Creflo Dollar $10,000 challenge, basically challenging people, hey, if you can show me where the Bible just supported what he said, I'll pay you $10,000. Funny enough, um, so far I haven't written any checks for $10,000, not even a penny, to be honest with you, Um, and no real takers, funny enough. But uh, somebody took that idea. His name is uh, Kevin Oliver. He's on on YouTube, and he's now he's this is his screen name on YouTube. Don't accuse me of being racist. I'm not. You know, his YouTube handle is not your typical Negro. Okay, and he has issued his own ten thousand dollar Creflo dollar challenge, and uh, which and he he wanted me to uh, know that he was doing that, and I'm going to pass that information along so that you can. Uh, I'll put a link up at fightingforthefaith.com so that you can see uh, his YouTube video that he put together, the $10,000 Pastor Creflo Dollar Bible Challenge. And uh, it's basically, he took some audio, some video from uh, Creflo Dollar's uh, TV show from October 23rd of this year. And uh, listen to what Creflo Dollar said uh, about prayer. I mean, this is wild stuff. Here we go. This is from the... Here it is. Prayer is... Man giving God legal right and permission to interfere in earth's affairs. Huh? (laughs) What? Uh, Prayer is man giving God legal right and permission to interfere in earth's affairs? Okay. Number two. Prayer is man man giving heaven earthly license to influence earth. Number three. Anyone got a problem with this so far? I mean, when did we become gods so that uh, we have to give God permission and legal right to act in our affairs? I thought God was sovereign, and we're creatures. Let's see. He's the creator. We're creatures. He's in charge. Just something I noticed. Prayer is a terrestrial license for celestial interference. 
Huh? Then number four. Prayer is man exercising his legal authority on earth to invoke heaven's influence on the planet. Hallelujah. Wow. Um, okay, so um, Kevin here, NYTN, we'll call him. He um, he's now issued his own ten thousand dollar Creflo Dollar Challenge, basically saying, you know, provide me with a single passage of scripture in context that teaches this stuff. Now, the reason I bring this up, although there's this gratuitous reason, you know, because I want everyone to know that you know I was the originator of the ten thousand dollar challenge. No, that's not true. Is because this actually comes back to something about the doctrine of sola scriptura. Bible alone is our authority, okay? And here's the deal, is if you're properly interpreting and understanding Scripture, and that, this is something you need to understand about sound doctrine. No doctrines can be, can be just made up out of thin air. In Christianity, the only doctrines that are allowed to truly be called doctrines or Christian doctrines are the ones where there is a clear word from God. You can't just make something up and say that's what it is. When you do that, you've skipped into the realm of philosophizing rather than theologizing. You know, I, hey, those two rhyme. I, you know, I. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? So if you wanted to say that God is a toasted cheese sandwich deity, you cannot do that and claim that's a Christian doctrine unless there's a clear word from God in the scriptures that says that God enjoys toasted cheese sandwiches. If you cannot find a passage of scripture to support your toasted cheese sandwich doctrine, then your toasted cheese sandwich doctrine is not biblical nor Christian doctrine. What Creflo Dollar did here, these four concepts that he just laid out regarding prayer, these are doctrines that are nowhere taught in the scriptures. In fact, they're pretty pretty much unique doctrines that are held by some word faith guys, including uh, Creflo Dollar and uh, and, what Hagen, Ken uh, Hagen and uh, and Copeland. All right. And so I, my kudos go out to uh, NYTN for uh, issuing this $10,000 challenge. And I'm gonna, I'd like to point you guys to what he's doing because, you know, I, I like to see guys who are standing up for the truth and putting, their, putting themselves on the line, not just physically but also financially. One of the things I've noticed nowadays is that uh, doing the, any kind of discernment stuff, not a lot of money in it. Uh, you have to pretty much be willing to pay, for, pay your own way to do these kinds of things. So... <clears throat> Anyway, so good on you, and uh, look forward to finding out if anyone is able to collect their ten thousand dollars, you know, supporting the false teachings of Creflo Dollar. All right, so let's uh, let's dive into our news here. I've got a news story that I want to read to y'all. Um, let's let's see here. Here's our news music. All right, here's the news. <clears throat> From the Christian Post, from Monday, October 27th, 2008. The headline reads, The Shack author insists bestseller is a god thing. (laughs) The author of The Shack insists that the book is a god thing. 
Subheadline reads, despite what critics have said about his highly popular and hotly debated bestseller, the Shack author, William Paul Young, remains convinced that his book is a God thing. Folks, do you mind if, um, you know, I just challenge some thinking here. The term God thing, where did that come from? I mean, I understand it's a euphemism, it's a colloquialism, it's something that has crept into our Christian vocabulary. And it generally sort of kind of means that, um, that God is behind it. And it also means that God's behind it in a positive way, right? So, now, here's the deal. You remember the ten plagues that fell on Egypt? Think about it for a second here. Now, from the point of view of the Israelite, right? from those children of Israel who were being led out at the end of the whole 10 plagues, they would definitely point to that and say it was a God thing. Okay. Yeah. Those whole 10 plagues. Yeah. Those were a God thing. Okay. And for that, from their point of view, it was viewed as a positive thing. Why? Because they've been released from 400 years of slavery. God has defeated Pharaoh. Now put yourself into the shoes of the Egyptian. Okay. The Egyptian at that point was equally experiencing these plagues. Well, they were experiencing their, these plagues kind of from the backhanded kind of view. I mean, they had their, they had the Nile turned to blood. They had frogs all over the place. They received boils. They, uh, you know, there were gnats everywhere. Then there was this darkness thing, and you know, and then their 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 the hail came and destroyed their crops, and then their you know their livestock was in, you know destroyed. Um, and then their firstborn were killed, right? Okay, so that was definitely a God thing. But notice that it was equally a God thing from both a negative and a positive, you know, depending on your perspective, okay? It was a God thing regardless, and your experience of it, whether good or bad, kind of just depended on from what perspective you were at. Now, and clearly we know it was a God thing because the scripture says so. Now, here's the deal, Okay. So when we claim that something's a God thing, we got to be careful. We have to really be careful. And the reason why is because, you know, I'll tell you, there's lots of things that we that probably go unnoticed to us that are God things. And not all the things that God does in our life are necessarily happy, sunny, rosy, positive things. For, okay, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? And just because something is popular, just because something is financially successful just because something has really taken off and quote changed the lives of people doesn't mean that it's a positive god thing i know that sounds odd to the american ear okay but um let's let's talk about something here that is you know definitely not a god thing but the same evidence is brought to bear did you know that the fastest growing religion in America is Mormonism? Mormonism. Mm-hmm. Yes, false gospel, false God, false scriptures, Mormonism. If you believe in the doctrines of Mormonism, then unfortunately you will die in your sins and um, the judgment for you will not be a fun thing. Okay, they believe in a false Christ. They have a false prophet. And uh, yet it is the fastest growing religion in America. Fastest growing. Millions of Americans have become Mormons, despite the fact that there is no archaeological evidence whatsoever to support the Book of Mormon. 
despite the fact that the doctrines that are taught by Mormonism are not only absurd, but they contradict clear passages of Scripture. Okay? So from the Mormon's point of view, this is where things get a little odd, they're going to say, hey, the growth of Mormonism, the rapid growth of Mormonism, and the fact that it's, it's changing people's lives for the better. And believe me, I've talked to many a Mormon who have said that their lives have improved as a result of Mormonism. They're saying that it's a God thing. Now, let's just assume for a second that it is a God thing. Does that mean that it's a positive God thing or is it a judgment God thing? And how would you find out the difference between the two? Right? Okay. Scripture's pretty clear that in the last days, men will gather for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. So in other words, one of the marks of the church in the last days is a growth and a proliferation of false doctrine and false teaching. And it will be It'll grow like crazy in wildfire, right? Yet scripture is also clear in, uh, in the books of Thessalonians that um, God in the last days will send a delusion on people so that they'll believe a lie. Right? They'll believe false doctrine. So just because something is growing, just because it's, quote, changing people's lives, for the better even, doesn't necessarily mean that it's a positive God thing. It actually might be a judgment God thing. And the way you're going to have to discern whether it's a good God thing or a bad God thing, because ultimately all things that happen on the planet go through and happen as a result of the permission granted by God. Remember Job? Yeah, Job, you know, that guy who lost his family and had all these terrible things happen to him, and he was literally lost everything and, you know, had boils and sickness and all that kind of stuff. You know, and that was because the God and the devil were having this little spat back backwards and forwards, and the devil was basically saying the only reason why Job praises you is because you protect him and you and you lavish him with, with wonderful things. You've made his life easy, and so if you took away everything that he had, then he would curse you, God. And so God basically said, all right, you're on. All right? And so all these terrible things happen to Job. So, um, you know, was that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, well, here's the deal. It, it was a God thing, no matter how you slice it, because God is the one who gave permission for Satan to do the things that he did. Right? So truly nothing happens to us without God aware, aware of it, and it without his stamp of approval of it happening in some way, shape, or form. <clears throat> so, if something's a God thing, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. Okay? Doesn't necessarily mean it's good. So, how do we determine something's a good God thing? Well, a good God thing would be something that flows from the gospel. Men being convicted of their sins. Being convicted regarding their sin and their unbelief and their unrighteousness and repenting and trusting in Christ for their salvation. That's a good God thing. Okay? Definitely. Spread a false religion? Well, technically, we can say God is allowing that to happen, so it's, quote, a God thing, but it isn't a good one. Okay? So when we talk about things being a God thing, let's clean that up a little bit, folks. All right, so here we go. <clears throat> Despite what critics have said about his highly popular and hotly debated bestseller, the Shack author, William P. Young, remains convinced that his book is a God thing. Quote, 
I absolutely am convinced that this is a God thing and that God is the one stirring this all up, challenging us to rethink and entertain and entertain growing deeper in a relationship with him rather than pursuing our independence. Young said during a live chat with book lovers last week, though Young had not originally intended the novel to be for public consumption since its debut on the market last year, the shack has reaped in a surprising amount of success, generating a large amount of buzz, both positive and negative within Christian circles. Quote, this book has the potential to do for our generation what John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress did for his, said Eugene Peterson, professor emeritus of spiritual theology at Regent College in Vancouver, in a published endorsement for the book, It's That Good. Now, Eugene Peterson also is known for bringing us such horrific <clears throat> things as the message paraphrase. Um all right, so Young's number one New York Times best-selling book tells the fictional redemptive story of Mackenzie Allen Phillips, whose daughter is tragically abducted and murdered during a family vacation. Four years after the tragedy, Phillips receives a note supposedly from God inviting him back to the abandoned shack where evidence of his daughter's murder had been found. When Phillips accepts the offer, he returns to the shack. He enters into a kind of spiritual therapy session with God, who appears... <laughs> I love how the author here of this news story gets the fact that what happened was a spiritual therapy session. Uh-huh. We talked about this. I did four or five segments in Fighting for the Faith about the shack because I read it. And, uh, <clears throat> okay, so who does a spiritual therapy session with God who appears in the form of a jolly African-American woman and calls herself Papa. Jesus, who appears as a Jewish workman in Sarayu, an, uh, an intermittently Asian woman who incarnates the Holy Spirit. Quote, this is a story of one believer's brokenness and how God reached into that pain and pulled him out in such a compelling story of God's redemption. Explained author and former pastor Wayne Jacobson, who was part of a team that worked with Young on the manuscript for over a year and also is part of Windblown Media, the company that he and Young formed to print and distribute the shack. Mm -hmm. The pain and healing came straight from a life that was broken by guilt and shame at an incredibly deep level, Jacobson wrote in his personal blog, and he, Young, compresses it into a weekend, the lessons that helped him walk out of that pain and find life in Jesus again. Now, this is where, <clears throat> folks, okay, I'll be willing to grant that the shack is a God thing. But that doesn't mean that I think it's of God in a positive way. And already from what is happening here in this news story, it should be obvious why. God is a jolly African-American woman. Mackenzie goes through a kind of spiritual therapy session with God. Sarayu, the Holy Spirit, is an Asian woman. You see what's going on here? And then here's the kicker. Listen to the sentence. This is a story of one believer's brokenness and how God reached into that pain and pulled him out, and as such is a compelling story of God's redemption. How is the word redemption being used here? Okay, this is where one of the things we Americans don't do very well, and we need to do better 
is that just because somebody uses the same terminology, the same words that we do, does not mean that they have the same meaning for those words. Okay? Redemption here is, this is a story of redemption in a therapeutic sense, in therapy. But that is not the redemption that's talked about in God's word. Okay? Let me read to you about redemption and reconciliation according to God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we, we regarded him thus, no, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, here's the question. If we have a ministry of reconciliation, what does that mean? Is, this, it, is, it, is it a story of reconciliation in the sense of therapy? God came to take care of your psychological disorders and, and help you overcome things in a 12-step Alan Alda kind of way? All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself by not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. Okay? That's the that's the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given. And as far as redemption is concerned, do you understand what that word actually means, redemption? Redemption has to do with purchasing. Okay? Redemption. Okay? It, it the Greek word there, well actually I don't have the Greek word in front of me for redemption. Uh let's see, through uh, redemption that is in Christ Jesus just by by his grace. There we go. I found it. Found it. Sorry about that, folks. I had to do. I had to pull something up here on my Greek. There it is. Um, <clears throat> it is the Greek word apalutrosis. Apalutrosis. There it is. All right. Greek word here, and this is an interesting Greek word. Okay, redemption has to do with buying back a slave or a captive, making free by a payment of a ransom. Okay, it's a release from a painful interrogation. It's a release from captivity. It's a release from uh, from slavery through a payment. When we redeem something, we purchase it. Okay, Um, so it's a conditional release of a of a captive based upon a payment. Folks, we've got to get back to the biblical concept of redemption. Redemption is not the is not some story. God, uh, it's a redemption story where God reaches in and makes me psychologically feel better. Hogwash. That's not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is about Christ's death on a cross to redeem mankind by paying for their sins through his blood. That's what redemption means. We've, we as Christians have lost the precision in our theology, lost the precision in our thinking, lost the precision in our biblical talk, so that now redemption is a story about somebody who experiences a therapy session with God. 
And supposedly that's a God thing. You know, if somebody has a breakthrough moment, <laughs> I had a breakthrough moment. God reached into my pain. Well, folks, therapy isn't Christianity. And trying to take therapy talk and make it Christian changes the meaning of the message itself. When Christ talks about redemption, we talk about the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. That has to do with purchase talk. We're being, we've been purchased by the blood of Christ. Uh, let me read Romans 3. Hang on a second here while I pull this up on my computerized Bible. Romans chapter 3. And we're going to start in the early parts of uh, what, verse 20. All right, here, 21. Here we go. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There's that word redemption there here in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Literally, this, it says, we're justified by his grace through the purchasing that Christ, that is in Christ Jesus. Christ redeeming us from slavery, redeeming us from our death to sin and the devil. He has redeemed us. This is a redemption. This isn't about you feeling better about yourself and the muck in your life. This is about Christ literally purchasing you away from sin. So, these guys are sitting here saying that this is a God thing, but I'm looking at their language and going, okay, we got a problem here. God is the jolly, uh, jolly African-American woman called Papa. That's not how God reveals himself. God has never revealed himself as a woman. Ever. And their concept here is a compelling story of God's redemption. No, this is not a compelling story of God's redemption. You don't know what redemption is if you think this is a story of redemption. It's not. It isn't. You're wrong. So, anyways, you know, they, they're sitting here saying that this is <clears throat> somehow a God thing. Well, sure, it's a God thing. But it doesn't mean that it's God's blessing. It could be God's curse. Think about it. Sure, it's a God thing. And it just might be that this is part of a delusion that God has sent on people who refuse to believe the truth. So God sells them over to a lie. Scary thoughts. Scary thoughts, but true thoughts. Anyway, well, I'll read a little bit more of the story here. <clears throat> Tim Challies writes about this. Despite the positive impact, which Young said he believes is for good and for God, critics of the book say there is too much bad that cannot be ignored. Yeah, I'm one of them. Hello. Much of what Young writes is good and even helpful. Again, assuming that the reader can see past the human personifications of God, wrote influential blogger Tim Challies in a downloadable 17-page review guide on the shack that compares the novel's assertions to scriptures. Good on you, uh, Tim. I might have to find that. Put a link up to it. But the book also raised several concerns, he continued, before addressing the issues of the Trinity, submission, free will, forgiveness, scripture, and the revelation, uh, revelation and salvation. In his conclusion, Challey said it was clear to him that the shack is a mix of good and bad. Sadly, though, there is much bad mixed in with the good, he added, and I agree. How, Young, however, argues that support from the theological community has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, 
Young, uh, uh, author Young here, um, the theological community. What's that? There's theological liberals, there's theological conservatives, and there's theological moderates. Um, so just because portions of the theological community uh, support the book doesn't make it true, right? Let God be true and men liars. Uh, Al Moeller, who is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, tried to get the book banned but was unsuccessful because the theologians of his denomination, that's the Southern Baptist Convention, this is the convention that brought us Rick Warren. They could not. They could find nothing unorthodox in the shack that would warrant it being removed or banned. They must have read it with their eyes closed. Young claimed last Wednesday, uh, SBTS, however, uh, that's Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, however, told the Christian Post that Mueller had not any point had not at any point asked an organization to restrict the sale of the title in any way, including Lifeway Christian Stores, which pulls the book from the shelves for a brief two-week review of its theology. Quote, These men do not know me at all, Young said of critics, which also includes Mark Driscoll, pastor of Mars Hill in Seattle, who Young said had not even read the book before criticizing it. But in the process, he continued, what they have written have actually told us much more about them than about the book. <laughs> wow, there's an argument. Don't you dare criticize me, and well, you have, and that tells me more about you than it does about the book, because the book is infallible. It is a God thing. How dare you challenge the God thing? Hmm. Yeah. Therefore, despite whatever controversies there are surrounding the book, Young said that there is nothing in the book that he wish he would wish to have changed. Nope. Would not change anything, he said. It's not a perfect book, I know, because I wrote it, but it's a gift. It is the gift I wanted to give to my children. Well, see, that's all it is. It's just a gift he wanted to give to his children. Forget all the heresy in it. I don't feel that I stirred up the controversy any more than I feel like I'm the reason for the success of the book. I believe that both are the activity of an affectionate God who has an incredible sense of humor, Young said. Over one million copies of The Shack have been sold since it was published in May 2007. It has maintained its status as the number one paperback trade fiction seller in the New York Times bestseller since June since June of 2008. According to Young, the title of the book is a metaphor for the places that you get stuck, you get hurt, you get damaged, and the thing where the shame or the hurt is centered. Uh, well, see, that's our sin, and Christ redeemed us through the cross regarding, anyway, going around in circles. So there you, there you have it. So apparently the shack is now a God thing. And that, and since it's, uh, understand, folks, understand that now that it has achieved God thing status, that means that to challenge it and to, to take issue with it is to challenge God in their way of thinking, because a God thing is always a positive thing. Not necessarily a negative, but just a little brief history and an understanding of Scripture. God things are not always good things for the people receiving the God thing. So just thought I'd put that out there for you all to think about. All right, we're going to uh, <clears throat> we're going to take a quick break. If you would like to email me, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and we'll be right back.
you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. All right, we're back. Rock these bad boys. It's a hilarious line. All right, I'm going to play something for you from uh, Cross TV. I don't know if you've ever heard of Cross TV, but uh, they've got some pretty good stuff that they put out that uh, challenges a lot of these seeker-sensitive ideas and uh, false doctrine and false teaching in the church. And they have a video that they did. Uh, is your pastor a Bible teacher or a philosopher? Is your pastor a Bible teacher or is he a philosopher? And I'm going to play the opening segments of this uh, this video that they did that I think really nails the point here. 
how do you know you're being fed God's word as opposed to something else? Because I'm going to tell you this. If you if you don't pay real close attention, false teachers have this uncanny way of being able to make you believe that what they're teaching you is God's word. And the way they do it is they'll open up their Bibles and they'll read a passage of scripture and to kind of, you know, give the appearance that, hey, everything I'm going to tell you right now is from God. But see, that's the problem. They're just using God's word as kind of they're kind of borrowing God's uh, authority. You know, here I've just read the Bible. So that means for those of you who aren't paying attention, that everything I'm about to say is really from God. But it isn't because a true Bible teacher will spend time in the text showing you what the scriptures teach. Somebody who uh, is a wolf will open up God's word. Oh, yeah, they they are really good at using God's word. They'll read a passage even, but then what they say isn't from God's word. It's from somewhere else. So let's listen to the opening segments of this video from Cross TV, this segment on is your Bible, is your pastor a Bible teacher or a philosopher? And this is how it generally works. And this is how it generally works. You walk into their church or you listen to them on television or radio. And the pastor reads a Bible passage, maybe even provides a few definitions from the original Greek or Hebrew language. Or perhaps he gives a few cross-references from other areas of Scripture. And that more or less sets the impression that what you're about to hear is a Bible study. But then they simply pontificate on some personal philosophy or insight. And with all the scriptural references, well, it can sound incredibly like they're teaching you about God's Word, when all along, they're simply giving you their own personal opinions and philosophies. Okay, he's going to play now some samples here from the Word Faith uh, TV ministers. Listen to some of this stuff. Okay, these are people who claim to be teaching you the Bible, but uh, the problem is you can't find any of this stuff anywhere in the Scriptures. Heaven has a north and a south and an east and a west. Consequently, it must be a planet. The Bible said he measured the heavens with a nine-inch span. Now, the span is the difference, distance between the end of the thumb and the end of the little finger. And, and that Bible said, in fact, the Amplified Translation translates the Hebrew text that way, that he measured out the heavens with a nine-inch span. Well, I got a ruler and measured mine, and my span's eight and three-quarter inches long. So now God's span is a quarter of inch to a quarter inch longer than mine. God's reason for creating Adam was his desire to reproduce himself. I mean a reproduction of himself. And in the Garden of Eden, he did that. He was not a little like God. He was not almost like God. He was not um, subordinate to God even. And Adam is as much like God as you can get. Just the same as Jesus, when he came into the earth, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He wasn't a lot like God. He's God manifested in the flesh. And I want you to know something. Adam in the Garden of Eden was God manifested in the flesh. That was uh, Kenneth Copeland. Adam is God manifested in the flesh. I don't think so, uh, mm, Copeland. I don't want to call him pastor because he's really not. Um, 
So there's the deal is that um, think about it. These guys claim to be Bible teachers. That, and if you watch the way they operate, they will open up their Bibles and they will um, read some passages to you. But all that stuff that you heard was their own ideas, was their own philosophies, was their own opinions. It had nothing to do with God whatsoever. Had nothing to do with God. It had nothing to do with the Bible because none of that stuff is actually found in the Bible. So when you um, are experiencing a Bible study, make sure that what you're receiving from the Bible teacher is what the Bible says, not opinions, not philosophy, not something else, but is what the Bible says. And with that, we're actually going to uh, dive into a sermon preached by the Reverend Bill Swirla. He, uh, he, we actually feature his sermons here at Pirate Christian Radio. And what I want to do is I want to uh, kind of juxtapose, uh, juxtapose this to something we played a couple of days ago. And that is uh, from uh, Victoria Osteen, Heresy Barbie. She, um, she has a new book out called Love Your Life. And here's the deal. These word faith teachers, they're basically going around teaching people that God wants you to have perfect health, perfect wealth, and that and that because by because we're healed by the stripes of Jesus, that means that uh, we shouldn't get sick. And that if you have faith, that means that uh, that you should have uh, uh, expensive vehicles, lots of money in your checking account, uh, expensive cars, uh, you know, uh, perfect health. You know, who knows how this all works, but. Take this sermon and compare it to that one, and uh, you know, to what you heard, and then we've got we've got something well completely different, I guess is the way to put it, because um, God's word teaches that the Christian life is one of suffering now, and so the name of this sermon is "Present Sufferings and Future Glory," and uh, and this is from a sermon from July of this year at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, preached by Pastor Bill Swirla. Here we go. Here again, a verse from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The Apostle Paul knows a thing or two about suffering. Listen to his own personal litany. Imprisoned, flogged, beaten, exposed to death. Five times he received the forty lashes less one from his own Israelites, three times beaten with rods, once stoned nearly to death, shipwrecked three times, one time left a day and a night floating in the open sea, in constant danger from flooding rivers, from bandits on the road, from his own countrymen, from the Gentiles. In the city, in the country, at sea, in danger from false brothers, in danger from all manner of things, sleepless, hungry, cold, naked, bearing the pressures of all the churches he had founded. Reading between the lines of his letters, some people believe that the apostle also suffered in his own body that he suffered from bad eyesight or blinding headaches. This man knew suffering. And he understood the source of our present suffering. We live in a fallen and decaying and dying cosmos. 
The whole creation, he says, is awaiting the resurrection of our bodies, just as we await the resurrection. When the sons of God will be revealed to sight, when faith will be vindicated, when hope will be realized, and finally that bondage to death and decay will be broken, and we will finally experience in our own bodies what we can only now know in a dim way, and that is the glorious freedom of the children of God. Paul says God is responsible for, uh, for this decay. It's his doing and it's his will that it be so. He subjected the whole created order, the entire universe, to death and decay on account of man's sin. I go back to my chemist past and thermodynamics, not exactly one of my favorite pursuits in chemistry, but uh, those of you who studied chemistry know a little what I'm talking about. I believe that entropy... Randomness, chaos, disorder, entropy entered into the world the minute that man listened to the word of the devil and disobeyed the word of God. Okay, stop there for a second. Notice, up until that point, Pastor Swirla was actually quoting multiple passages together that dealt with the same theme. And he just said, I believe that. Now that's important, okay? He doesn't have a sharp word of God. He puts it biblically at the fall of man. But he did us the favor of at least saying, okay, hey, what I'm about to tell you right now I think is, is, is what happened. It's my opinion. Which means you can take it or leave it. But um, he's at this point trying to you know, exegete the scripture and he's doing a fine job. So, but notice he said, I believe. Because there is no clear word of Scripture that says it happened at the moment the man fell, but that would seem consistent with the experience that we have considering the fall of man and the other passages of Scripture say that the earth was subjected to frustration as a result of our sin. So we continue. He brought chaos and disorder and decay into the cosmos. And God subjected the entire created order to this decay. Why? Here's why. Because rehab and remodeling is not God's way of fixing things. We think it is. And we act as though it were. Please, God, help me fix this little problem of mine that I'm having. Death and resurrection are the ticket. Not only for you and me, but also for the entire creation. For everything that God spoke into creation. Remodeling involves superficial work, cosmetic work, a little paint, some plaster, new carpets, refinished floors, granite countertops. It looks all nice, at least for a while. But if the wall studs are being chewed up by termites and the electrical and the plumbing is going bad behind the walls and under the house, no amount of paint, plaster, and wallpaper is going to keep this house standing. What's needed is an extreme makeover. That show kind of fits, actually. You know when it started a few years ago? They used to actually fix things up. Now they don't bother anymore. They just wreck the whole thing and rebuild it. That's an extreme makeover. Not a nip here and a tuck there, but demolish the thing to the ground with a cosmic wrecking ball and raise up something new. A new creation, death and resurrection. 
That's the way God works. The death and resurrection of Jesus is at the heart of all of this. He is the head. He is the creative word in the flesh. He embodies the entire cosmos, the world in his body. And he takes the cosmos through his death and resurrection and brings it into a glorious new creation. That's where hope comes in. This is not a hopeless situation we're involved in here. But the creation was subjected to futility and death in hope, in hope, so that just as Christ broke the chains of death for sinful man, so the whole creation would be freed from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom that is ours as the children of God. Freedom. Glorious freedom. Imagine it if you dare. Freedom from sickness. Freedom from death. Freedom from bondage to decay. All right, now see, those are the themes of the word faith movement. What's this Lutheran pastor doing preaching that? But notice he's, he's grounding this teaching in the clear passages of Scripture, which talk about the coming glory. And our present sufferings. The word faith folks have it backwards. They seem to think that we somehow have present glory. Mm-hmm. And entropy and disorder that chisels away at us and drives us to our graves. This is our hope in Christ, a hope that is as sure as Jesus risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity is sure. This isn't hope in the way of the way we say, I hope it's true. I hope it'll work out that way. I'm not sure, but I hope so. No, this is hope that is based on a sure and certain word of the man who is the Son of God who died and rose and said to us, because I live, you will live also. St. Paul says the whole creation is groaning. And we hear the groaning every waking moment. Listen, can you hear it? $5 a gallon gasoline. The climate going nuts. Oceans dying. Species going extinct faster than you can say Charles Darwin. Wars, rumors of wars, Iranian nukes, Islamic terrorists, anarchy in Africa, droughts, floods, famines, storms, fires, bugs that defy modern medicines. And add to the list whatever else you will. The death, the decay are all around us. It's unmistakable. It's growing louder and louder each day. You have to be tone deaf not to hear this. The groaning of the cosmos as it is subjected to frustration, to futility, to randomness, to chaos, to disorder and decay and death. But hold on a second. Did you hear what the Apostle called all of these groanings, these pains? He did not call them the death throes of a dying universe. He called them the labor pains, the pain of childbearing, the amplified pain of Eve on account of her sin, the groanings of this present world, all the misery that you read about and that you experience in your own lives are the birthing pains of the new creation. Jesus said exactly the same thing. Nation will rise against nation, 
Kingdom will rise up against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And then he says, all these are the beginnings of the birth pains. They are the labor contractions of the new creation that has come in Jesus. The way to the new creation is the way of the cross. And that means suffering. Last time I checked, crosses hurt. Crosses are not pleasant painless things. We talk about the theology of the cross. That's a Lutheran commonplace. But do we understand that this means suffering, present suffering, holy suffering that brings us through death to life? Paul says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that means we who are baptized into Christ, we who are are already glorified in Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ, we in ourselves groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, that is, the redemption of our bodies. Oh, we are already redeemed in Christ. Make no mistake about that. Our sins are washed away by His blood, a blood that is poured on us in baptism, poured into us in His supper, drilled into our ears by His word, You are redeemed, yes, but your bodies remain captive to decay and death, just as, as Paul said, with our flesh, we continue to serve the law of sin. In our bodies, we still bear the wages of sin. All right. Kind of a sobering teaching we got going on here. This isn't something to make you feel good, and there's nothing you can, there's no methods that you can package this up in to try to make it more relevant. Notice he's just really outlining and clearly teaching what the scriptures teach. He's not blowing smoke at you, not offering you a super sunny outcome in this life. Instead, he's um, offering you suffering. Well, that doesn't make me feel good. How how are we supposed to get a million people into your church, Pastor? I mean, you, how come, what do we, if you would stop preaching like this, I mean, you you might be able to, um, you know, make a new building, you know, get tens of thousands of people showing up. Mm -hmm. But then again, they wouldn't be hearing the truth like they are right now. That's why you get sick. That's why you age. That's why cells become cancerous why arteries clog, why bones get brittle and arthritic, and minds turn to mush. Our bodies remain captive to sin and death, even as we ourselves have been freed from sin and death in Christ. And this is the way it must be. You cannot rehab the old Adam. He must die. You can't give him a superficial makeover, break some of his old bad habits. He'll develop more. He's a sinner through and through. He has to die. You have died forensically in Christ, and one day you will die in yourself. And out of that death will come your life, your adoption as sons of God, the resurrection of your bodies. The adoption papers were signed, sealed, delivered on the day of your baptism when the water of baptism flowed on you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you were adopted as his children. And now all that remains is for God to claim you in the resurrection of your body. You must die and rise. Remember, no rehab. 
death and resurrection. This is the hope of our salvation. The hope. It's something to be trusted, to be believed. It demands faith. Faith and hope always go together. Hope is the object of faith. Faith is the promise of things hoped for. If you see it, you don't need to believe it. If you have it, you don't have to hope for it. Who hopes for what he already has, Paul asks. We hope for what we do not have, what we long for, what we are waiting for. Like a little kid counts the days to Christmas or his birthday. We hope for it. Our brother Pierre sent me some great pictures from his medical mission to Kenya. We'll show them in the Bible class when he's uh, back from the fire department. He's, he's held hostage there right now. He's captive to the fire department, so he can't be here. But when he's here, we'll show those pictures in Bible class, impressive pictures. I'll try to paint a word picture of one of them for you today. He uh, took a picture of the Lutheran church in Kenya where he worshipped his first Sunday in country. It had been burned during the riots, the post-election riots earlier in the year. Never been repaired. The walls were badly charred, soot all over the walls. The floor was just covered with rubble. The windows were all broken. The cross that hung behind this humble table, this vested table, which was their altar, was just a cross in the shape of char. It looked like those chunks of wood that you use for grilling. That's what the cross looked like, just blackened, cracked char. Whatever design had been painted on it, I assume there had been some kind of design on it, not visible at all, just, a, just, just char. It looked like a piece of charcoal. That's all there was everywhere was char and soot and ash. And Pierre said that the air still stank. Seven months later, it still smelled of, of flames and smoke. And amazingly, that tiny table and the pulpit and the font and most of the pews were spared the fire. Some might call that a miracle. I, I don't know. I, I'm not so quick to invoke miracles. I, I, maybe the wood was made of something that wasn't as flammable as everything else. But the miracle for me is this, that those people in that congregation gathered together every Sunday, and indeed most days, in their burned-out, sooty, smelly church to hear the Word of God preached from that pulpit to have their children baptized at that font, to eat and drink the body and blood of their Lord from that altar, the Lord's business was going on as usual in the midst of death and destruction and decay. And the people were joyful. They were filled with hope. They trusted not what their eyes could see, that sooty, charred cross. They trusted their ears, what their ears heard, the hope of the resurrection and the life that is to come, which was already theirs and yours in Christ Jesus. People who watch the world and what's going on with the gospel in the world are telling us to watch Africa. It's where the action is. The gospel is spreading like wildfire. In Africa at the moment, I'm told that the Lutheran Church in Madagascar is bigger than the LCMS. They're going to be sending missionaries over here pretty soon. You just wait. <laughs> they look over here, they say they're godless over there. They need to hear the gospel. They'll be sending missionaries. 
Yeah, that would be fun, wouldn't it? Uh, getting missionaries from Africa to the United States because the U.S. is godless. Hmm. In the midst of suffering and hardship and poverty and famine and drought and civil war and oppression and violence, hope is springing up. Hope in Jesus. St. Paul said it earlier in Romans chapter 5. He said, we rejoice in our sufferings. Since we're justified by grace, we have peace with God, and therefore we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces patience, patient endurance, and character and hope that does not fail us. That's the theology of the cross. God works in, with, and under present suffering to produce patient endurance and character and hope. Hmm. We work- You're not going to hear that from Joel Osteen. No way. You're not going to hear that from seeker-sensitive pastors. Suffering produces character and hope. Got to be crazy. Americans don't want to hear about suffering. They want to hear about the things that they can do to make their marriage better, make their finances better, make their career more fulfilling. Suffering? Are you nuts? We worry about suffering in our culture. We don't want to suffer. I say, bring it on. Bring it on. Perhaps the church in our land will grow a backbone once again. We can be like the churches of Africa. This calls for patience. Oh, patience, patient endurance, long-suffering. We are an impatient people, trained to have it our way instantly. Instant messaging. (laughs) Yeah. Microwave meals. Waiting is not our strong suit. Oh, no. The traffic backs up and we pop off in a rage. I know someone once who prayed, she she said, I prayed for the gift of patience. And God sent her suffering and trials and misery. I said, be careful what you pray for. That's That's how he does it. That's how you get patience. You go through suffering. Patience means resting in God. Patience means seeing beyond what your eye can see. Patience means seeing with your ears clinging to the promise of life even as you die day by day, praying each day, thy will be done, trusting, believing that the will of God is good and gracious and that it is done even without your prayer. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray for. We construct our little litanies, our collects of concerns, our pitiful little pleadings and petitions. We don't know what we're talking about. We don't know what to pray for. We tell God what we want, what we need. (laughs) He already knows. We tell God what to do. He knows better than we. But here's the good part. It doesn't matter. Pray anyway. St. Paul says the Spirit intercedes for us. He takes those puny prayers, those words, and he turns them into groanings. Groanings that words cannot express. He takes our groanings, too. And he packages our prayers for delivery to the Father through the Son. And those prayers are heard and they are answered for Jesus' sake. I believe that's why God rarely answers my prayers the way I pray them. The Spirit who knows the mind of God is saying, what he really means is this. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's what a mother would say. 
when she's in the middle of labor pains, present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory of that birth and the gift of that child. The birthday is coming. Resurrection day is coming. Wait on it patiently, expectantly, faithfully, hopefully. Hmm. All right, so there you got it. Compare that to the stuff that's being packaged nowadays. Somehow we expect God to make our lives better. We need to love our lives rather than hate them. You see, the thing is, is that we live in a, in, a, in a world that is fraught with sin, suffering, and death, destruction, evil. And you think that you're a victim? <laughs> no, you're not. You've contributed your own cesspool of sinfulness into the already reeking still waters of this earth where everyone else's sins have all come together. And so our hope is in Christ and our hope is in the resurrection. And right now we can expect suffering. We can expect suffering and death. We can expect suffering and trials and tribulations and persecutions and struggles. That's the life. Christianity didn't come to take away your suffering. Did Christianity doesn't exist to make it so that you're you can basically claim name it and claim it and live on easy street and be wealthy and drive the best car in the world. That's not it at all. Christ doesn't necessarily take away your suffering instead sees you through it in much the same way that he went through it on the cross. We have our own crosses that we bear. Take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow the king. Well, that's our show for today. And if you would like to email me, you can. You can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Tomorrow, I've already talked about it, Reformation Day. A brand new 95 Theses, literally aimed right at the, between the eyes of the purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive movement and evangelical Christianity, if you can call it that. I'll have uh, Reverend Bill Swirla in studio with me tomorrow. Look forward to it. Till then, God bless.